You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome one, welcome all to another amazing episode of Changing Reality. So thank you guys so much for tuning in and joining us for this week's episode. If this is your first time watching Changing Reality, a little FYI for you guys, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. So through the show, we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers entrepreneurs, uh, business uh, owners, industry leaders, um, people who are going around uh, coming up with new inventions, people with revolutionized industries, as well as artists, musicians, and inspiring good individuals from all across the world. Well, many of them have actually spent time on the Penn campus as well. So by hearing these inspiring stories on how they are changing the worlds that they live in, changing their own lives, their own careers, hopefully we'll be able to pick out little snippets of wisdom, little nuggets that we can apply in our own life in building the careers, the lifestyles that we want for ourselves. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are so many phenomenal people out there who make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm passionate about learning how they're doing this in their own capacity and how the ripple effects um, create so much change in industry and the people around them so that with this knowledge, we can hopefully figure out how we can solve the problems that we want in the world, how we can similarly have that effect of changing the lives of those around them through changing ourselves. And to show you how important or how much I love the stories and the power that stories hold, uh, especially when they're real world stories and experiences. I actually personally founded and run a youth movement called The Sentence. Um, it started back in Malaysia, which is where I'm from. Uh, but today it collaborates with over 28 different countries, um, Ministry of Education, large companies, MNCs, to provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them through real world experiences, and take those meaningful experiences and come back and create their own careers while they're still in school. That not only has a meaningful impact for themselves, but for those around them too. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with 35,000 youngsters in 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects, social enterprises, and many other things run by students aged 8 to 25 years old. And the basis for all of this has been stories. It's been kind individuals who are willing to share their stories to shorten the learning curve of these uh, youngsters who want to do something a little bit different. And I hope in that same vein that this show provides that same opportunity for all of you who are listening, that by hearing this area of experiences, this diversity of things that have happened to people, we not only get inspired, but we also see the limitless possibilities. And that in turn helps build, the, uh, helps us see the discrepancies, the similarities, the tools that we can use to change the world around us. So if you have any more questions about the show, if there's anything that you want to know specifically, please do reach out. Um, you can drop a comment in the chat below if you have anything specific you want to talk about, and we'll definitely see how we can incorporate it into the show as well. So today's speaker is someone who probably has uh, revolutionized an industry in a part of the world at a truly phenomenal pace. 
So we have with us Douglas Abrams, the founder and CEO of Xpara, Southeast Asia's leading accelerator and venture fund. He has launched and invested in five VC funds since 2007. He is an adjunct associate professor at the National University of Singapore's Business School, where he lectures on new venture creation for undergraduates and postgraduates since 2001, and a visiting professor in venture capital at Sassin Graduate Institute of Business Administration um, in Bangkok as well. So he has not only um, lectured in Vietnam, Bangkok, Singapore, uh, places all around the world, but he's also someone who is very active in the venture space, uh, both in Southeast Asia. He was the former chairman of Business Angel Network of Southeast Asia and previous deputy co-chairman and was director in 2002 to 2018. And he also served on the board of Media Development Authority of Singapore from 2009 to 2010 as well as having founded many other um, uh, funds, including Parallax Capital Management, a Singapore-based funds managed capital in 2000. He also um, had a phenomenal career prior to coming to Singapore in 2000, where he actually managed information technology at JP Morgan for 14 years and was the global markets head of internet marketing um, and vice president and manager of investment banking technology. So, Without further ado, let's invite our extremely accomplished guest speaker to our virtual stage. Hello. Hi, Douglas. Thank you so much for joining in. How are you today? Oh, uh, thanks so much for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here, Harsha, and I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be uh, having a chance to have a chance to talk to uh, Penn students from the other side of the world in Singapore. Yep, yep. So one thing I didn't mention is that you actually are alumni of Penn, which is amazing. And uh, personally, it's phenomenal. But every time I meet alumni, because I just am so inspired by the way that they charted their journey and the way that you specifically have actually uh, literally crossed halfway around the world, made so much change in the lives of others and had an extremely interesting career path yourself. So you have, before we go into detail, the all of the amazing things that you've done um, as an individual. I have to ask though, you were someone who did your bachelor's of communication um, at Penn itself. When you were at Penn, did you know exactly like that this would be the path for you? I mean, you didn't study venture specifically, so communications is a little bit different. And was this like part of some grand scheme of things that you knew you wanted to do, you had it all planned out? Or was it just something that, um, I don't know, were you as lost and confused as the rest of us back then? Oh, definitely. I never imagined in the, in a million years that this is where I would be into when I was at Penn um, in 1976 till 1980. I think if I had to make a list of a thousand different places I would be in things that I'd be doing in 2022, this would definitely have not been on that list. I had no idea that the path I would take after graduation would lead me here and no plan to do anything similar to this. When, when I was an undergrad majoring in communications, I had some vague idea that I wanted to work in um, uh, publishing or media, which actually I did do for a while after graduation. But not only did I never think that I would be involved in venture capital or uh, investing in startups, but I never, even uh, imagined or wanted to work in financial services, have any interest in working in uh, any type of investment. And I, in fact, I 
remember thinking back then it would be really boring to work in a bank, even though I knew, you know, a lot of uh, fellow students felt differently. And obviously I feel differently now, but it, it certainly wasn't in my long-term plan uh, at that time. And even post-graduation, uh, it wasn't my long-term plan to get to Singapore to do venture capital. So it was, uh, I would have to go with uh, um, pretty much no idea what I really wanted to do when I was an undergrad and even pretty, even even when I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I took the, uh, I took the approach of, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And I just, I tried to do uh, things that I thought were interesting and challenging. And ultimately that led me to where I am now. Absolutely phenomenal. And I think you, you tried out many things after you in college to very like amazing heights of success, uh, even in your first few things that you tried. What was the first major like role or job or thing that you did after Penn uh, when you first graduated? I mean, many of us either we are worried about lining jobs up, we're worried about like interviews and all of that, or on the other hand, we are, we are, we are still deciding what's the first thing we want to do. Do we want to travel? Do we want to go out? Do we want to take a gap year? What, what were you doing like your first year out of Penn? Yeah, so interestingly, I wasn't very concerned about interviewing or getting a job when I graduated from school. Um, not sure why, but I didn't get uh, stressed out about that at that time. Um, I, I mean, I think there are uh, generally two types of people in university, uh, people who know what they want to do and probably have known what they wanted to do for a long time. They have a very specific goal and they're pursuing it and they go from point A to point B to point C to the outcome that they're trying to achieve, which is great. I have tremendous respect for that. And then there are other people like me who not really sure what they wanted to do and trying to find the way. So for me, I was trying to find a way. When I first graduated, I didn't have a job lined up. I hadn't interviewed. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I decided to travel. So a friend of mine uh, who was also graduated from Penn at the same time, we took a cross country tour of the US, uh, basically just driving and camping and going to many different places. Uh, and we did that for about two months. So it was really, uh, you know, really fun, really exciting. I hadn't been uh, to that many places in the U.S. at that time. I had been mostly in the East Coast, so we started from Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia. We went, uh, drove all the way across the country to California, and then we drove all the way back over about a two-month period. Uh, you know, and not uh, uh, again, not really having a very specific itinerary or a real plan, just sort of go where the the road took us, and it was uh, very uh, enjoyable. And I can still, I mean, it's more than. Uh, 40 years, but I still remember that that trip very clearly. So that was my that was the first activity, and um, I never felt like oh I'm missing out, I'm falling behind. You know, I felt like oh I'm experiencing something uh, new, something exciting, uh, learning about new places, and creating you know, memory that uh, now I can still uh, look back on finally. But then when I got back, even when I got back from this trip, I didn't have a clear plan what I wanted to do next, but I did decide I should probably start working. So I took a, a temporary job in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, which was hosting a, a very uh, 
important at that time exhibit of Picasso painting the, the, and works. The whole uh, museum was uh, turned over to Picasso and I just took a job as a security, basically security guard, like standing in the museum and telling people not to touch the paintings. This was the main job content. But what was really great about that job was I got to pick the gallery that I wanted to stay in. So each day I would stay in a different gallery and I would look at the paintings or the artwork all day and I would have a chance to really study and experience it. And I, that was, a, I think, a really helpful introduction to me about if no matter what job you're doing, there can be tremendous value in that job if you approach it in the right way. So, of course, I've never before or since had the opportunity to spend so much time with such great art and just nothing to do but stand there and look at it. And uh, it was uh, another experience that you know, was really valuable, not really in a plan, but just sort of random, but that uh, I really enjoyed and also, uh, I think, learned a lot from. Uh, of course, I couldn't continue to do that after exhibit ended. So by the time that ended, then I decided to, I needed to get a real job. Uh, so that's when I got my first real job in uh, book publishing. So I uh, started, uh, I applied for it and I got a job in Crown Publishers, which uh, back then was uh, independently owned. Second, at that time was second largest independent publisher in the US. Now it's an imprint, a random house. Uh, and I applied for and I got a job there as an editorial assistant. So started a real career in book publishing. I uh, was living in New Jersey at that time, uh, post-graduation, but uh, a few months after I got the job, I moved into New York City and then began my first career as a, a editorial assistant in book publishing. Absolutely brilliant. And just to pause a little bit on you, I love the very many experiences that you had even before like you started, okay, this is a career that I want to You traveled, you spent time with art. These are all things that I feel like, like we know in theory enrich the soul and broaden horizons, but we don't often take time to do in practice when, when we're busy kind of like in the rush of things. What do you think were your biggest takeaways or, or the, the most enriching part of those experiences like now looking back? Is it something that you still hold dear and you still think that, okay, everyone should do something like this at some point in their life? Or, or how do you feel about it now looking back? I think the, the most important lesson I took or what stuck with me about those experiences was just do what you want to do. Um, don't focus on um, what you should be doing or what everybody else is doing or what others are telling you that you should do or what you think you should do. Just do what you want to do and uh, do something that you're passionate about. Do something that you're going to enjoy doing. And uh, if you do, by doing that consistently, you're going to not just, you're not only going to enjoy your life, but you're going to have uh, maximum uh, fulfillment of your potential because i believe that your maximum fulfillment of your potential and deriving meaning from your life comes a lot from doing things that are important uh, to you and things you enjoy doing and things that create meaningful outcomes for you so each of those things like the the trip that i took i enjoyed doing it and it was meaningful to me and i took away meaningful results uh, even the temporary job in the museum uh, it was something I enjoyed doing and I took away meaningful results from that. And even though I couldn't see, so it wasn't uh, something where I had a very clear plan of how these were going to get me to a certain place, 
But in fact, they did get me to the next step, which was the, they did ultimately lead to my next step, which was the book publishing career, which again was, uh, this was something, maybe this was the closest to a plan that I had because I did have a, or it's the closest to a, a choice that I made that was consistent with some sort of long-term plan because I did always love books. I was an editor of my high school newspaper. Um, so I enjoyed editing. Um, I enjoyed, uh, I love to read books. I thought books were uh, the, one of the most important things in the world because they contain so much knowledge and learning uh, and to, and I, I love to read back then. Actually, I love to read since I learned to read until today and I'm always reading books. So uh, the, if I had to think about what would my, what was my career thinking when I was younger in university, I thought to be involved with uh, books or writing somehow, maybe newspaper or uh, maybe I didn't specifically think book publishing, but to be in a, a career that involved writing was probably the closest to a plan that I have. So when I got into book publishing, that was a step down that road. Uh, I mean, a concrete step down that road. Absolutely. Now, of course, the, the, now of course that I did that for five and a half years, and then I changed to a totally new direction. But uh, at least that was uh, something consistent with something like a long-term plan. But after, uh, and and I had a uh, very you know, rewarding and. Um, enjoyable career in book publishing because I started out as editorial assistant and then I uh, became a assistant editor and moved up through the editorial uh, ranks within Crown uh, and ultimately became an acquisition editor in my mid-20s, which was pretty uh, good career progression for book publishing at that time. And uh, I was happy about that and excited. But uh, actually after about five years in book publishing, I realized that uh, this probably wasn't the long-term career that I wanted. I started to um, feel like, yeah, I love to read books, but, uh, oh, and there's a comment from my, from one of my dogs who may be joining us uh, at this point. So I realized that I really love to read books and <laughs> there you can see one, of, this is Lisa Liz joining us in the background. So I love to read books, but uh, I didn't enjoy as much creating books as, or being part of book creation as I did reading. So I realized I could still um, read all the books that I wanted without having a job in book publishing. And I started to feel like um, maybe this was uh, good up to a point and it was exciting and a little glamorous because it was in New York City and book publishing was sort of part of media back then. Uh, and it was, uh, I, I work with a lot of brilliant people, um, talented people, um, uh, but I started to feel like hmm, this uh, next step in the career was going to take a really long time because there weren't a lot of next level positions after this editorial, after I became an acquisitions editor. And I think I was, I was looking at maybe my next big move, next step up was gonna take 10 years. And I think when I was mid twenties, like 10 years seemed like forever. Now, now I can make 10 year career plans and feel pretty comfortable. I mean, in venture capital, our, our fund lives are typically 10 years. So when we launch a new fund, you know, we're thinking about what we're gonna do 10 years from now and it seems okay. I think at 25, I thought 10 years is forever and I can't really uh, 
plan uh, comfortably that far ahead. So I decided it was a good time to make a change. No, I don't blame you. Ten years is like a very long time for my brain to process. So like I I, I understand the logic of twenty five year old you, but it's still an like like amazing that you actually like had something that you loved. You actually had time as a, in, in that kind of I hope that's Lisa. Hi. Anyway, so uh, like when when you started when you were in that industry, you like. Was it as glamorous, like as you mentioned, that um, you know you go for book parties, you you do like so many fun and interesting things, you meet amazing people. But it was also a time where um, I don't think you had Microsoft Word processor to to be able to edit and, and put together things the way we can now. So what was the actual experience like when when you were there, and how did that lead to you transitioning to the next thing that you do? Oh yeah, definitely there was a lot of you know social aspect to that career and a lot, you know, some fun and glamorous stuff, but there was also a lot of hard work and long hours and low pay. And I think that's, that, that was typical of book publishing back then. So, uh, in, I was living in New York city and it's not, it wasn't as expensive back then as it is now, but it's still pretty expensive. So my New book publishing, yeah, New York is just expensive. And the, my book publishing salary wasn't, enabling me to live that comfortably in New York. So I wanted to augment uh, my income. So I decided to uh, start doing some freelance work and I, I set up my first company. So this is, I think my first experience of uh, entrepreneurship of myself. I set up my, just a single person company to do freelance work. And the work that I was doing was uh, manuscript retyping. So back then, uh, book manuscripts were typewritten and then copy editors uh, would edit the manuscripts literally with a pencil. Uh, so, you know, you hear about, we talk about that today, the, the idea of marking up a manuscript, but they were really marked up with pencil, uh, red pencils. And after uh, all of the editorial suggestions and the back and forth on the manuscript, the manuscript would have to be retyped, incorporating the handwritten changes. And my job uh, in my freelance role was to take these edited manuscripts and retype them into a fresh, clean typewritten manuscript with no, no mistakes. And this was uh, pretty uh, not, not creative and not, you know, uh, like stressful, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was just, this was just very, you know, tedious and uh, time consuming, but it was you know, well, relatively well paid for that type of work. But because I was working long hours in book publishing, I had to do my manuscript retyping at night. So I would usually start retyping manuscripts around 9 or 10 p.m. and finish, you know, 1 or 2 a.m. And I would get paid per page. So it was very important that uh, to optimize my time, I had to produce, you know, perfect pages every night. Uh, and it would take about a week or 10 days to complete a manuscript. So uh, one terrible problem I encountered in this job was because I was using a, a typewriter, which electric typewriter, but still a typewriter, uh, it would happen. And especially since I was retyping things late at night, I would sometimes make a mistake. And if that mistake was uh, missing a word or missing a line, you know, jumping from one line to another, because for example, two lines started with the same word. Uh, if I left out a line or even a couple of words, uh, and I didn't realize that until the end of the night when I went back to check the pages, 
uh, all of the pages after that mistake would be useless because I would have to go back to where I made the original mistake and retype everything after that. So of course, this was very uh, you know, frustrating situation for me. I'm already tired and uh, you know, ready to go to sleep. And um, then realizing all this work is unpaid because I'm gonna have to retype. And I can still clearly remember doing you know this typing in my office, which was, I think, on the 17th floor of the Crown Office building. And I was be uh, looking out the window, you know, past my typewriter at the time when I had a mistake in one of these pages, realizing I was going to have to retype everything. And I felt like I wanted to take the typewriter and throw it out the window um, from frustration. Of course, I would never do that, but, but I, you know, I, I would have loved you. I, I would just be yeah. like, oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Probably there was nobody in the street that late at night, so it would have been, but we still would have had damage to the window and everything. But I was so, and I remember the typewriter was IBM Selectric 2. It was a great typewriter at that time. But anyway, so this became a very, you know, painful problem for me. And then uh, at around the same time or shortly after this, we got in the Crown office, we got something called a IBM Display Writer. Now, it wasn't a computer. It was a dedicated word processing machine. You can go check it on Google. It was a giant machine, but uh, by today's standards, and all it did was let you use a, a word processing software, basically, to create documents. And I started to play with it. There was only one in the whole company, and I, uh, but I wanted to see what it did. I tested it you know, out, and I realized uh, that you could use this machine to create documents just like I was using a typewriter, except that all the documents were stored in digital file. And if you made a mistake, you could go back and correct it before you printed it out. And then when you corrected it, you could just repaginate the document. I still remember the, the moment when I discovered this repagination function and I thought, my whole world changed. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but in, in, a, in a small but very important way, my reality changed because now this terrible pain of you missed a line and you're going to have to retype 10 or 20 pages suddenly is gone forever. And I took away very, uh, this was one of these, you know, light bulb moments for me where I understood what I now call value proposition which is a new technology that uh, a new technology solves a painful problem for customers. And I was a customer for this technology. I had a very painful problem and it was now gone because of this new technology. So from, from that moment until now, I basically, I fell in love with technology because I realized that it can so solve painful problems. Now, of course, there's two sides to that and technology can also create painful problems. But in that situation, I immediately fell in love with technology, compute, you know, uh, computers, and word processing software. And I taught myself how to use the word processing uh, machine. And from then on, I never, you know, was angry at my typewriter again. <laughs> All right, the people walking down the street were a lot safer for a while. You also started like like you. This was also around the time I think when you thought of. I think leaving your job in book publishing and starting your own thing and starting something by yourself and going full-time as a freelancer. How, how was it like, I think for anyone who, who makes the decision, that's always kind of like the hardest jump to actually leave a full-time job and go and try something that maybe is not as certain. 
how was it like for you making that decision and how did you go in again thinking about what do i do next your next career job ended up in J- in jp morgan which is where people plot and think and and i don't know have whiteboards or chalkboards in their houses of their 10 step plan of how are they going to get it like how are they going to get a job there but you had a very interesting part to transitioning in there right Oh yeah, it was even more. It was even a little more random than that because I, when I yeah, when I left book publishing, when I left Crown, I really didn't know what I was going to do next. So it wasn't that I wasn't in a situation yet where I thought I'm going to go out and start something on my own. I was in a situation where um, it was time to make a change, and I left the company without having a real plan what I was going to do next. Um, then uh, after that, then I started thinking, okay, what should I do? And uh, I just, I, I took some freelance work reading movie manuscripts. And uh, then uh, it was springtime and I was living on uh, 102nd Street in between West End and Riverside Drive in, in Manhattan. And it was a nice spring and I was able to spend time in the park uh, and it was really pleasant. But again, I started thinking, okay, now, uh, better make some more and I need to get some steady income. And a friend of mine, uh, who I was discussing this situation with mentioned to me, she said, Oh, you know how to use a word processing machine. Right. And I said, yeah, I learned how to do that while I was at crown. And she said, uh, you know, there, you can, uh, get a well-paying temporary job doing word processing because back then it was rare and people, not a lot of people knew how to use these machines. So I thought, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Why don't I try that? And I signed up with a temporary agency and uh, indicated that I had word processing skill. So the temporary agency got back to me with my first assignment, which was a two day assignment doing temporary word processing at JP Morgan. And I thought, Oh, okay, that's great. And, I went to do the two-day word processing assignment, and that was the beginning of my 14-year career at J.P. Morgan. I never left, you know, after that two-day assignment. So that was another very random, you know, career transition where the publishing uh, career led me to the uh, temp to my nighttime manuscript retyping job, which led me to learn word processing, which led me to a temporary job doing word processing, which led me to a two-day assignment at J.P. Morgan that extended into a 14-year career. So, <laughs> yeah, I like to, I mean, when I talk to people about my career path, I like to say, I believe that I have unique career path. I believe that if there may be nobody else in the world that followed this exact career path, um, and I think it's a great fit with the, the theme of your program, which is there are many, many paths to uh, get you where you want to go. Uh, you don't need to follow any particular path or uh, any path that uh, has already been established. You can create your own path, which is exactly what I've been doing for the last now 42 years. So Absolutely. two day work uh, mm-hmm. so processing, got to JP Morgan. And then uh, again, I had never, even at that, oh, at that time I did start to get had, I did start to get more interested in banking because there was, um, I had been following in the news, like Wall, more news about Wall Street. This was um, during 1980s. So we're, it was uh, 
now it's like 1985. So there was, you know, corporate raiders on Wall Street. There was uh, junk bonds on Wall Street. You know, so there were starting to be a interesting, like, news coming out of Wall Street and some uh, things I never really had heard of before. So I started reading about that in the news and I thought, oh, Wall Street sounds <laughs> a little more interesting than I imagined working in a bank. And then suddenly I was working on Wall Street because actually my first assignment at JP Morgan was in Midtown, Midtown office. But subsequently I moved to downtown office, which was at 15 Broad and also uh, later at 60 Wall. So this did change, did ultimately lead me to really career on actual Wall Street, uh, which was a big change for me, but also something that I learned a lot from and that led me ultimately to my current, you know, career, uh, third, you know, let's say third career. So I had the first career book publishing, second career in managing technology and investment banking, uh, and then global markets at JP Morgan, and then third career running my own company, doing uh, venture capital investment and incubation acceleration and training in uh, Singapore. Insane. That's the only one to my mind. Strange, strange, but true. If you, yeah, imagine if you like you set out to write that story. This is the career path that somebody would follow, and you would think. Wow, that that couldn't happen in real life, but in fact, it did happen to me in real life, and it's still happening today. So here I am. <laughs> no, 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 it's amazing, and especially because you know, if you get a two-day temp job, you know, normally most people will go in for two days, maybe three, a month. They're extremely lucky. You had a fourteen-year career when you ended up um, at a very, very high position when when you decided to be vice president and manager of investment banking technology. That is not what I think most people expect going into a two-day job at a firm where I think many people are, are, are fighting to be a part of. Or, or Wall Street itself is something that we we have a certain perception of that it's very tough to get in. It's very um, difficult to make it in. But you stood out from the very beginning. What was it? Do you think about you? that enabled you to actually grow so fast and actually grow in a very in this extremely tough field and and shine despite having kind of like the bare minimum of, of, of recognition in the very beginning stages yeah that's a really good question and just to just to clarify a little bit like the vice president at jp morgan at that time i would say it's sort of a senior middle management role it wasn't super you know high level i mean because there was managing director above vice president, which was really the high level position. So I think I did okay there. You know, I did advance a lot from temporary word processor to vice president, which was a great career progression, but just to be, be clear about that. So, um, and I, I like to say that, you know, starting as temporary word processor was almost below the bottom of the career ladder. I mean, almost, uh, again, there were very few people that, most people that, started at the same time as me at JP Morgan, they took a much more traditional route into JP Morgan. So they would come in as an analyst, uh, you know, undergraduate, uh, uh, they would maybe do an internship, then they would get hired as an analyst, then they would work for two years as an analyst, then they would leave JP Morgan uh, to get an MBA, uh, complete MBA, and then either come back to JP Morgan as an associate or go to another investment bank as an associate. So I think that was the most common career path. Uh, but for me, entering as a temporary word processor and building that into a career was very unusual. Um, and now, so yes, what, what enabled me to do that? So I think that 
uh, it was not just one thing, but I think the the way I basically did that was I uh, took initiative. So no matter what I was doing in JP Morgan, as I tried to develop my career, I always tried to do a great job at it and learn while I was doing it and then um, add more value. So for example, you know, when I, after the temporary word processing job, I, one of the, or sort of at the same time, one of my most important tasks was, was photocopying. So I would photocopy documents for hours. You know, I would stand at the photocopy machine with hundreds or thousands of pages and make copies. And you might think this is, you know, very boring uh, and trivial job, but of course it was, you know, pretty boring <clears throat> to make so many copies. But what I would do was when I was copying the documents, I would read the documents at the same time. So while I was copying, I was also reading. So while I was reading, I learned about a lot of the products that I would have no exposure to in my day-to-day -day work. But because I was photocopying documents, I had plenty of time. So it was a good chance to, to learn about products. And the second thing was I was uh, always looking for opportunities to add value uh, and to, um, to uh, do things that other people didn't want to do. Uh, so I eventually... Uh, was able to, after some, you know, very simple word processing tasks, then I was able to um, figure out ways to use the word processing software to uh, improve the business productivity. Like, for example, I uh, organized, I helped to organize a client event by creating a very simple and early database to uh, track invitations and RSVPs, which previously had been done by hand. So I was able to uh, think about how can I, even though I'm in a pretty, um, uh, let's say, don't have a lot of authority or not in a very uh, important uh, position, but how can I still add value? And after that, I was able, I came up with another idea was to uh, use the desktop publishing software, which was a very new type of software at that time, to produce client presentation books, which nobody had been doing before. Um, and this became my basically uh, full-time job. So after I stopped doing the temporary word processing, I started using desktop publishing software to produce client uh, presentation books, which was actually a very important part of the investment banking business back then. So we would be producing, uh, we would produce uh, hundreds of these books a week and we were using very uh, traditional methods of typing and then sending them out to the printer. And I realized we could use desktop publishing software to do the same thing, much more uh, cost effectively, efficiently, and better because we could make changes up to the last minute, which everybody wanted to do, but couldn't do with the old method of sending out to a publishing house. And when I look back on this experience, I, I see, I would now classify what I was doing at that point in my career as, as intrapreneurship. So I was acting like an entrepreneur within an organization, trying to come up with new products and services that we could use to build the business. I didn't recognize it as such back then, but now when I, uh, when I reflect on it, I see the beginning of my real uh, entrepreneurial career in the entrepreneurial work I was doing at JP Morgan, building out uh, what ultimately became the uh, presentation group within investment banking. So that was a great uh, experience for me. 
again, now really utilizing technology to solve more important business problems and then building a small organization around that, almost like you know, creating an internal startup. And I think this started to uh, kindle within me uh, uh, a flame of entrepreneurial uh, ambition that later led to me leaving JP Morgan to come to Singapore to set up my first company, as you mentioned, Parallax Capital Management, which was the precursor to Expara. So again, you can see how a series of apparently you know, disconnected choices and decisions ultimately led to uh, a new path, which was even more satisfying than the previous path. Absolutely. Like, I, would, I would call it like genius in, like, like in terms of your planning, but you mentioned it wasn't necessarily all planning. So genius in terms of just doing your best and, and thinking on the spot. How do you keep that entrepreneurship spirit going as you kind of like grew in the corporate ladder? Because what happens, to, I, I see in some cases that as people get more established, as they get more kind of like fixed in their roles, that that spirit of trying new things, of experimenting, of doing things differently dwindles down a little bit. How did you keep that alive in your career? Yeah, so um, actually I struggle with this also. And as I continued in the JP Morgan career, so I was, uh, I got increasing levels of responsibility. So I moved into more and more managerial type positions, which is great, you know, in corporate uh, career progression because more responsibility, you know, bigger, but managing bigger budget, managing more people. And definitely that was a very challenging and exciting experience for me. And I learned a lot through that, but in the end, I felt like ultimately this was not satisfying for me because I thought, you know, uh, the more I advanced in my JP Morgan career, the more time I spent on, um, less time I spent on doing what I felt was creative and meaningful work. And the more time I spent on dealing with uh, political issues and going to meetings and sitting in meetings and, uh, and that type of thing, which again, you know, it's not that that's a bad thing, but it wasn't rewarding for me. It wasn't something that I really enjoyed doing and I didn't feel like I was creating meaningful results. For, I feel like one of the most important lessons that I learned throughout my career and something that's really uh, always guiding light for me is satisfaction in work. And I think satisfaction in life comes from uh, creating meaningful results. So doing things that are meaningful to you and creating meaningful results from those things. So book publishing was, I always felt like I was doing something meaningful because I was creating new knowledge. Uh, in investment banking, uh, I felt like I was doing meaningful things when I was using technology to solve new problems because I felt, you know, first computers, then local air networks, then internet were all technologies that were going to make a huge difference in the world. And I was able to, in my small area of the world, use those to solve problems. But when my career there became more about managing a group and um, managerial responsibility uh, and less about creating new products, it started to become less meaningful for me. That was why I made one of the reasons I made the transition in the last phase of my JP Morgan career to uh, Global Markets Internet, where I was working more on implementing internet, uh, some of the first uh, products that JP Morgan had on the internet, which was obviously hugely exciting, or maybe not obviously, but was hugely exciting because 
that was a, then I started going to meetings where I would be doing presentations with titles like PowerPoint slides titled, what is the internet? Um, and then, uh, and then the second slide would be who owns internet? And the answer is nobody. And nobody, uh, people would be very surprised about that. So this was definitely something really exciting and uh, meaningful to me, but, uh, that actually was what ultimately led me to Singapore because after working with internet at JP Morgan in the, uh, in the late 1990s, I noticed uh, that the, our US clients were very active on internet and European clients were becoming active on internet. But in Asia, there was very little activity on our internet products. And back then in 1990, 1998 and 1999, I traveled to uh, Southeast Asia for the first time. And I saw the, um, reason that clients weren't using internet was that the internet hadn't really, uh, the internet wave hadn't really hit Southeast Asia uh, at, at that time. And I thought, wow, that's a huge opportunity because internet was already pretty big in the US, starting to be big in Europe. And I was sure it was gonna be big in Southeast Asia. And then I uh, also, uh, since I was feeling less challenged and excited about the JP Morgan career, this was when I realized, um, it's time for me to go out and really start something on my own. And it's uh, the right time to do that in uh, venture capital in Southeast Asia <laughs> through, through another sort of series of somewhat coincidence. For example, my very good friend from Wharton Business School was, uh, who was also working on Wall Street was having some similar thought process to mine, wanted to start his own business and in uh, Southeast Asia and financial services. So we teamed up on that. And ultimately that led to Parallax Capital Management, which was uh, doing a hedge fund and early stage venture capital fund. But I think an interesting you know, lesson that I learned from that experience was, so I, after 14 years at JP Morgan, I just left uh, and I moved to Singapore to start a uh, alternative investment manager with three friends. And I had no, only been to Singapore maybe two or three times. So I had really no experience of Singapore. I had no experience uh, living anywhere for any length of time except the New York metropolitan area because I spent 42 years living in either New York, New Jersey or Pennsylvania, uh, all at 90 mile radius uh, from one another. And the first time I really made a geographical change, I moved literally halfway around the world, 12 time zones. Uh, you can't go any further without getting closer again. Uh, and then uh, again, with not really knowing anything about very little about Southeast Asia and almost nothing about venture capital uh, or alternative investment management, but just believing that I was going to learn on the job and just take a chance and do it. And so that's maybe the situation you're talking about before. How do you get the, uh, how do you get the, the nerve to do that? Or how do you have the courage to do that? But, but in fact, it was pretty easy decision for me because I felt like, okay, what's the worst case? I leave JP Morgan after 14 years, I go to Singapore to start my own company. If it doesn't work out after two years, I come back and I can get a job, another job in investment banking if I really want. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I would take some, you know, maybe I wouldn't make as much money as I would if I had stayed for two more years, but it's not going to be the end of the world. There's always another job in investment banking that I could probably get. And if it 
does work out in Singapore, then that's going to be great. And that's exactly what happened. So in the end, it worked out. And my two years again now became 22 years. So at the beginning, I gave myself two years. Let's see how it works. Um, that was 2000. Now it's 2022. And I'm still uh, doing uh, venture capital in Southeast Asia. So two became 22 years. That's nice to know. And oh, you know another interesting footnote to that story that I always remember. When I remember when I was walking around JP Morgan uh, 60 Wall, which was the headquarters of JP Morgan at that time, and I was saying goodbye to the people that I work with, you know, and tell them I was leaving. And a lot of people said to me, um, told me, oh, I really respect what you're doing. Uh, it's so great that you're making a change and that you're willing to go out on your own and give give all this up because definitely it was comfortable life, you know, working at JP Morgan back then. Uh, and, uh, you know, the compensation was good and the benefits were good. And there were, you know, I worked with great people there. You know, there were um, like a lot of brilliant, talented, hardworking people from all over the world. And it was pretty uh, good organizational culture. But many of my friends said, I wish I could do the same thing as you, but I just can't afford uh, to take a risk like that. And I said, I perfectly understand. Nine months later, JP Morgan was uh, sold to Chase. And a lot of my friends lost their job at that time, you know, and I thought, wow, so what was the bigger risk? I mean, in a way, you know, I left ahead of that and I left uh, to start my own company, which was now, you know, at least started by the time that happened. But for my friends that stayed, you know, now some didn't. So some of them, some of my friends still work there, you know, many years later. But definitely some of the people that uh, told me I can't afford to lose my job, they did lose their job in the merger and maybe at the worst possible time because there were, you know, thousands of other people from that merger also losing their job at the same time and then out looking for a new job. So that was so, uh, pretty good timing, pretty good timing. No, no, but another instance of kind of like, I think you just following your heart and then things working out like, like, for the best in kind of like hindsight but, but that is again very crazy to think because i feel like we, we don't see these things looking forward and and like only when we kind of look back like like we're like oh my goodness like i can't believe like as you said it's it's almost as if it's it's movie like your journey in a way yeah. and watching yeah, yeah. it and if you watch it as a movie you'll be like hmm, i don't know if that's so realistic that it would happen but that it's in it's crazy that it actually did how was it like when you first moved to a new country started up something um, that maybe you didn't know exactly, you hadn't been exactly in that specific segment of the field before. And again, it's a different place, it's a different industry, it's a different culture towards internet technology, towards venture capital. Um, still, Southeast Asia is not, I think, um, exactly in the same wavelength as the venture scene in the US. So I can only assume it was much, the discrepancy was much more back then when you first started. Did everything go according to plan? Did you go there and be like, you know what, this is exactly how it's going to turn out. It worked out perfectly. We were 100% right on this. Or was it? Or was there more to that story in a sense? Oh, no, no, nothing went according to plan. I mean, it everything, yeah. I mean, it was in when I, again, when I look back on this, I think in exogenous, let's say looking at exogenous events, it was maybe the worst possible time to start a, venture capital fund in Southeast Asia because um, in some ways it was great because we were way ahead of the market. Uh, but in other ways, it was almost impeccably the wrong timing because 
we launched our first, uh, we launched Parallax in early 2000. So January, February, 2000. And by March, 2000, we saw the beginning of the dot-com collapse. So the tech market, uh, the, you know, there was a huge stock market bubble in early internet companies. And that bubble, if you go back and check, I think that bubble started to pop a month after we, after we started our company. And then um, we made investments. We decided to <clears throat> begin our fund uh, management career by investing ourselves. So we basically partners invested in a bunch of five or six startup companies, um, all of which failed within the next two years. Um, as uh, so basically the bottom dropped out of the market as soon as we started the company um, uh, and then there was a series of other exogenous shocks like 9-11 SARS which was a precursor uh, to COVID um, later the 2007-2008 financial crisis so for throughout the first 10 my first 10 years in Singapore it was one exogenous shock after another and I like to, okay, when I think about that early, the first couple of years at Parallax, I like to describe it as we started the company at the, like you get on a roller coaster and you're at the top of the highest hill. And right after we started, we went over that hill and went down the steepest drop. So I was, uh, at the same time, I was trying to learn how to do, you know, venture capital uh, and how to invest in startup companies while we're, you know, plummeting down this 75 degree slope, everybody screaming, you know, all the way down and everything flying out of the car. So, but again, in, in hindsight, although this was, you know, like a pretty scary experience at that time, but in hindsight, this was also very good timing in the sense that it was really one of those, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger experiences because it didn't kill me. And I, it didn't kill me and it didn't kill the company. And uh, ultimately, Expira came out of this experience. And I started Expira in 2003, spinning off from Parallax. Even after the uh, dot-com dot collapse, after SARS, and after Southeast Asia Venture Capital, which was basically the baby in the cradle and it almost died uh, because all most of the early players deserted you know, Singapore by 2002. But I decided uh, this is what I want to do. Uh, there was a, a, a big rush of proto venture capitalists into Singapore in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then as the market collapsed, pretty much everybody left except me and a few other people. Uh, and I decided I wanted to stay and build up, help to build the enterprise ecosystem in Singapore. So the startup and venture capital ecosystem. And I was very privileged to, you know, have a chance to be a part of that. And uh, that was the, one of the great, you know, uh, experiences in my career. So I'm really happy that we started at that time, despite how difficult it was. And today you guys are leading in the region, which is absolutely brilliant. And you really did help nurture the space. As an entrepreneur, I thank you. As an entrepreneur from Southeast Asia, I'd to thank you twice. So like, it, it is absolutely amazing to hear that. Why did, like, what was the, 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 the main or main reasons that you decided that, you know, what, I'm going to stick to this. I'm going to, I'm going to stay. 
seeing everyone else kind of jump ship when when things got bad in a way because of course i i doubt that that was an easy decision and and, and especially at that point of time with all of the turmoil and as you said plunging down the roller coaster i don't think that's something that would have come easy to you and how did prior like after that decision how did the thing like the market recover how did you actually go about rebuilding and forming expand oh so i think yeah the the reason most people left the reason a lot of early entrants in venture capital in singapore left was shortage of deal flow so you know they found that there weren't enough entrepreneurs starting investable companies so i saw the same thing shortage of deal flow but i thought instead of leaving i can help to create deal flow and how to help to create deal flow so i i had uh, i started teaching at the national university of singapore where i'm still adjunct associate professor in the business school i started teaching new venture creation and uh, i thought the way to get more deal flow is to help uh develop that generation of young entrepreneurs that are going to create that deal flow and i thought this is going to take a long time i mean you know when you start at university level teaching undergrad uh, courses in entrepreneurship it's not going to create deal flow this quarter but in years over years it it can create deal flow and in fact that's exactly what happened so if you and again it's not just me there were you know many people that were there were others and who did even you know, more than I did uh, but I was one of the people contributing to this development of young entrepreneurs uh, from especially from NUS NUS played a leading role in NUS I like to you think of NUS was sort of like that if you think of Singapore as Silicon Valley of Southeast Asia which okay it's a little overused but it's still a good way to understand Singapore's place in the entrepreneurial ecosystem in the region then NUS was like the Stanford of uh, Singapore creating that generation of young entrepreneurs that drove the development ecosystem and I was you know privileged to be part of that but it takes a long term view but so I felt like the fundamentals were there I felt there's a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs and venture capital investors in Southeast Asia it's not going to be happening in 2020 it's not going to happen in 2001 or 2002 but it could happen in at that time I thought it could happen like 2005 2006 In real life it happened a little later I would say now 2009 2010 but I did see the long term potential and I thought instead of you know running away I want to stay and help to build that so at first as uh, uh, teaching at NUS and continuing to do that and then later uh, in 2000 beginning in 2003 setting up Expira to do uh, at that time mostly training entrepreneurship training Uh, workshops uh, incubation and then later acceleration so uh, i thought i can not uh, i can help to solve this problem roll up the sleeves and really work uh, to solve rather than leave and look for new opportunity and in fact that that ex- the results there exceeded my wildest expectations because i i think now you know singapore specifically southeast asia in general is the the most exciting and and uh venture capital and startup uh ecosystem in the world and one that gets the you know least attention but i think there's this, you know we've seen a uh, increasing number of successful high growth startups coming out of uh singapore out of indonesia uh, and i believe we're going to see 
more and more over the next 10 years, including uh, Thailand and Vietnam, where we have been focusing heavily over the last five to 10 years. Okay. And again, that's, that's, that is very nice to hear because I do feel at times like there's not much stories on Southeast Asia being the next big thing, but I've always believed it because I'm ridiculously biased because I'm from there. But it's validating to hear that from you as well. And you've, after that, went on to build so many things, expanded Expara to, to I think, different parts of Southeast Asia, not just Singapore. Looking back now, what do you think were some of your most, your most fulfilling achievement that you've seen over the last few years in really growing this whole initiative? Oh, well, most fulfilling achievement. It's hard to say because I had so many fulfilling achievements, but I would say, okay, if I had to think just about personally fulfilling, it's the, it's the teaching that I did um, in universities, which, okay, it sounds funny because uh, yeah, I have done a lot of different things and definitely teaching in the university. It's not the most financially rewarding, but from a personal satisfaction perspective, I think that's the most rewarding activity that I've had because why? Because when I would teach a new venture creation course or teach an entrepreneurship course or teach a venture capital course in Sasson, and then um, one of my students would go on to great success as an entrepreneur or a venture capital investor, I would feel like that course actually helped this person to realize their dream. So, you know, I've been uh, focused a lot in my career on realizing my own dreams, you know, making sure that I do what's important to me, what's meaningful to me uh, and create meaningful results for others. And in teaching, I got a chance, I have had a chance and continue to have a chance to help others to do that. And of course, when I impact others that way, then they go on to impact others. So you get that, you know, pass it forward um, uh, feeling of having a ability to improve the lives of so many people through a very simple activity of teaching. And I'll get a every once in a while i'll get an email or have a conversation with a student sometimes i get emails from students former students who say you know your course really changed my life uh, what i learned in that class i never thought about being an entrepreneur before and now then i decided to become an entrepreneur and now i've done it and it was the best decision i ever made and i'm so happy with the the outcome and i feel you know almost want to cry you know like a tears of happiness like to feel wow, I was able to directly impact somebody that way. And venture capital also has similar uh, fulfilling aspects because we focus on very early stage, um, pre-seed, seed, and post-seed, and pre-series A, which is the real foundation stage for startup companies. We're usually the first uh, investor or outside investor in the company. And again, I get that similar satisfaction of uh, working with somebody who has a dream to change the world in some way of course this has almost become cliche entrepreneurs want to change the world but but just because it's cliche doesn't mean it's not true in 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 some cases and i do see the most successful entrepreneurs that i've met they really do want to change the world and they can do it when they're successful so having a chance to uh contribute to that is also extremely rewarding okay Absolutely brilliant. And I feel like we only scratched the surface of your many experiences, the many amazing things that you've done. And I 
completely did not realize that we're almost towards the end of our session, which is so tragic because I have so many questions, so many things that I want to know more about. But I guess to, to wind down our conversation, normally I ask our speakers what, what their message is to students, but I feel like students right now have probably been knocked out by the sheer like uh, the, the sheer amazingness of your story and are probably still digesting and recovering. And as an entrepreneur, as someone who probably is still in the very early stages of my career, I have been fortunate to meet many business owners, company owners who are much more successful, much more uh, established. For for you who, who has been very established in three different, completely different segments of your career, in three different points of your life, and have gone on to do the next great thing, the next amazing thing. And today even helps so many others that realize that. What What's your advice to everyone out there who maybe has achieved a certain amount of success, not sure where to hit next, and maybe wants to give back to the community? What would you say to them? Oh, so the question was, what would be advice I would give to somebody who wants to start their own business or who's already started their own business? Yes, who's already started their own business, but maybe has some success, not yet to the place like a complete where they want to be, but wants to give back, wants to help others achieve that same amount of success. Oh, so, okay. So I would say if you, let's say you achieve some level of success, but you want to, you want to help others and, or you want to achieve more success. So I would say the single most important piece of advice is take more risk. Um, Whatever level of risk you're taking now, increase. And if you think about, if we look at my story that we talked about uh, in, in this discussion, at each stage of my career, I increased the level of risk I was taking. So I would take more and more risk at each junction. And this creates a, a risk return trade-off where by taking more risk, when you are successful, uh, in taking that risk, you're able to achieve much more meaningful results. So whatever you're doing now, whatever level of risk you're taking, increase that level of risk to achieve uh, the next level of success. And as you achieve a higher level of success, then you can help more people. I always like to, uh, sometimes in our business, people will distinguish between, for example, a startup that is a uh, for uh, like a for-profit startup and a social enterprise. And I, uh, because a for-profit startup is perceived as just trying to make money and social enterprise, trying to solve pressing social problems. And I have tremendous respect for both, you know, for-profit startups and social enterprise, but I don't think you necessarily need to choose. I think you can create a, the very successful for-profit startup that also solves pressing social problems. So I would think about uh, if you want to give back, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs do want to give back, think about how your startup can uh, not just make a lot of money or not just solve pressing social problems, but do both at the same time. For example, now we're we're focusing a lot on agritech and food tech startups. And if you think about the uh, successful agritech and food tech startups can not only be financially rewarding, but can also solve pressing social problems relating to um, food systems. So uh, I would say try to uh, follow your uh, summing up in a way, uh, do something that you're passionate about doing. When you do that, you will work harder than you would if you're doing something that you think you should be doing. Uh, working harder at something that you're passionate about will enable you to be the best at that, being the best at what you're doing 
will enable you to be successful and then take more risk and be more successful and repeat. All right. Very, very well said. And thank you so much for actually spending your time with us for sharing all of your experiences and your words of wisdom. I personally have been extremely inspired and I think I speak for our audience that this has been an amazing conversation. So thank you for your time. And I hope that you had as much fun as we did uh, in sharing your experiences that we had in listening to them. I certainly did. And I just wanted to mention, uh, if you're interested in it, finding out more about the experiences, I'm actually writing a book now about my experiences and also how it fits in with my career development and also about venture capital and startup. So if anybody's interested to find out more about that, they can go to our website and they can register the interest in the book. So I can- That's find amazing. And I'll drop the links as well for that. Oh, can you see my chat or no? Uh, no, we can't. Right. Oh. So anyway, you just go to expire.com slash book. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. very easy. So, anyway, nice yeah, so. Yeah, I, I like that. And I will definitely share the link around and I definitely will drop my name in as well because I truly appreciated this conversation and I think that there's so much more that we can learn from you. And hopefully when the book is out, we can get you back on the show and talk about that as well to our audience. So thank you so much. And yes. with that, guys, thank you to our audience as well for joining in. This has been Changing Reality. We're on every Thursday at 10 p.m. BT uh, from WQHS Radio in the Philadelphia area. But wherever that is around the world for you guys. So thank you guys for watching and see you all again next Thursday. Bye. Thank you. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.